Welcome to the latest experts in the field podcast from Foot Anstead's farms, estates and rural land team. With guest speakers and in-house experts, we'll provide insights into rural developments and current affairs. Welcome to another episode. I'm Edward Benmore. This week to discuss natural capital, I'm very happy to welcome Julia Parham from Savills. Julia leads Savills Natural Capital Services in the south of England. She's provided strategic estate management advice to long-term landowners and over recent years has developed a particular focus advising on nutrient neutrality and biodiversity net gain. We're recording this podcast at the end of September 2022 and it's obviously at this point in time quite a a period of uh, significant change with government. So please do bear in mind the discussions taking place against that backdrop. Uh, Julia, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate you giving up your time this morning to talk to us. Thank you, Edward. Yeah, pleased to be here. To kick things off, natural capital, uh, Julia, has been a term that's been around for a number of years and it's quite a broad term. But in a nutshell, can you summarise for those listening what this term includes? Yeah, absolutely. As you say, the term has been around for quite a few years now, but I do still get asked this question a lot, which I suppose shows us how new this market still is, but also perhaps reveals that there's still, rightly or wrongly, a certain level of confusion around the subject. So in the interest of keeping things very simple, natural capital is a term that we use to describe the world's stock of natural resources. So everything around us, our soils, our air, our water, our biodiversity, pretty much every living thing in our environment. And it basically encourages us to think of nature as a stock, as a capital asset that provides a flow of benefits to people and then also to the economy. Okay. And so what relationship does natural capital have for the changes in the agricultural sector? And what is the relevance for uh, those uh, interested in farming and, and farmers, obviously? So all of the changes really that we're seeing at the moment are, well, many of them are a direct result of the wider sort of environmental agenda, not just domestically, but also globally. And I think in that respect, it's absolutely fundamental to these recent changes and indeed those which are also coming down the track. I actually can't really think of many things that are more relevant to farmers at the moment, certainly in terms of shaping the future of their businesses, You know, whether it's countryside stewardship, carbon accounting, management of soils, regenerative farming, ELMS, which of course encompasses three schemes, the sustainable farming incentive, local nature recovery, and landscape recovery. You can't really get away from it. And it's clear, I think, that the trend is all towards preserving and enhancing the environment. So it is an inevitable part of our future. And in my view, we need to start getting into the habit of critically appraising our land holdings in terms of their natural capital, which is a slightly different way of doing things, but we do need to get on board with that. Yeah, absolutely. How does this work in in practice, though? Because these terms, obviously, you hear governments talking about these issues and lots of the press, but in practice, what do you advise people to do? Yeah, it all sounds very far away and and far removed from day to day, doesn't it? But I think the way I think about it when I go out onto a farm is, okay, from a natural capital perspective, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What are the opportunities and what are the threats? So a good old-fashioned SWOT analysis. What does this farm do well? What does it do badly? Where are we exposed, frankly? So, you know, if you look at each of the entities I mentioned, so things like water quality, carbon emissions, soil health, each of those could present as either a threat to the farm or an opportunity. And I 
generally find that the opportunities are well understood. You know, you provide a service, a nature-based solution to the problem, and you sell the units that that generates. And funding for that can be from a public or a private buyer. And as a sort of general rule of thumb, I suppose, if you're trying to maintain habitat, then that's really public money, so countryside stewardship, elms, etc. But if you're creating or enhancing habitat, that tends to be the private market. And that's all pretty straightforward. You know, we can get our heads around that. But as a business, you also need to consider the weaknesses and the threats, which is, you know, always hard to do. But I think we need to focus more on this because I don't know about you, Edward, but I frequently encounter farmers who say, well, I'm not interested in this environmental agenda. I don't want to cash in on these opportunities. I don't want to take my land out of food production. I just want to keep my nose out of it and keep doing what I'm doing without getting into bed with either the public or the private sector. And I understand that. I'm a farmer's daughter myself, and I fundamentally believe in the importance of land being used for food production. And nobody wants to see grade one arable farms being rewilded. And of course, that's not what it's about. It's about using the right land for the right purpose. But, you know, that's what gets in the news, and that's what people tend to focus on. I think the difficulty for those sort of farmers that you talk about is the changing tone of communication from government over yeah. such a long period of time and if you're talking about putting land into any of these sort of schemes initiatives it's not a short-term project that you're embarking on it's a very long-term project so what we always say to clients you need to think very much long-term and think very carefully about what you're doing and what projects you're looking for be that renewables or any of the things that we're talking about today. Absolutely and it does feel like for those reasons it feels like there's an enormous topic that you can't tackle and more recently, the narrative of, well, Liz Trust is going to reverse it all anyway, means that people are sort of slightly burying their heads in the sand. And I understand those attitudes, and that's all well and good. But what I would say to that farmer is, well, whether we like it or not, the world is subscribed now to this way of thinking. So at some point, you will probably be hit by some form of legislative train coming down the track. Yeah, the long-term trend of policy is is clear, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And since that 2050 net zero agenda was set, we've had Brexit, we've had a global pandemic, and it's still there. So I think it's safe to say it's probably here to stay. And within that, we just, it's sensible to then understand where the threats are and what are the risks. So part of this appraisal of our farm holding is is understanding that. So, you know, one of the biggest risks is likely to be pressure from the supply chain. You know, am I going to find that there's a requirement to meet certain sustainability standards in order to maintain my contract? The answer is yes, more than likely. Then there's a really old (laughs) grain dryer that burns a load of oil, so that doesn't feel very carbon friendly. Perhaps we need to deal with that in the next few years, or is my slurry storage up to scratch? Question mark. And in terms of the tenant sector, actually, that's very relevant, because in some cases, the cost of upgrading and investing in farms to improve animal welfare and waste handling might ultimately prove be prohibitively expensive so it is crucial to start looking inwards and thinking about these sorts of things now so that we all know where we stand and you know even larger farming companies might find that they're under additional pressure to look at their environmental social and governance policies whether we like it or not the public is now much more engaged they care about the farmed environment in a way perhaps they didn't before they care about where their food comes from and how it's produced and I don't see that going away anytime soon. Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about what your landowner clients 
do or what you recommend they do to really understand properly the natural capital that they have on their their land and properly understand what the opportunities available to them? I would always say the first step is to carry out a baseline or a series of baseline surveys really to quantify what you've got and then identify areas of value. So it might seem like an enormous task and I speak to clients who've been keen to do this for years but just haven't known quite how to make it happen. But it doesn't have to be huge. You know, the key, you know, with any of these things, break it down into bite-sized chunks and it'll look different for every client. You know, there's no point in an owner-occupier having a load of pretty plans drawn up showing him where his hedgerows are. You know, he already knows that very well, thank you very much. But for an absent landlord or institutional client, that actually might be very valuable. So some thought needs to go into that. And at that stage, it's just about getting the right professional advice, really, to get that process underway. And the results of that can then feed into your wider 10 or 20 year strategy for the farm. And in terms of other things a landowner can do, there is also a certain element of self-education on the sorts of schemes out there. There is plenty of good advice and guidance available. We're actually extremely lucky at Savills. We have an amazing research team who regularly publish updates, so extremely helpful um, on a whole myriad of topics. Um, But there are lots of sources of information out there. For what it's worth, I think it's worth at this stage doing some soul searching and engaging in discussions with any other stakeholders on the farm so that you know roughly what everyone's aims are. I think in that respect, I tried to keep a very broad mind and be guided somewhat by nature because we all know it will do best where it wants to be, not where we want it to be, sadly. And, you know, try and put any historic preconceptions to one side. It is an opportunity to perhaps do something totally different and take the farm in a completely new direction. It doesn't have to just be about doing what the previous generation has done. Julia, to bring that to life, would you perhaps give us some examples that you can share with us? Yeah. I would say a good example is probably a piece of work that I've done recently for a family who had the opportunity to buy the farm which surrounded their house, which they did, and found themselves in possession of a few hundred acres, which they knew they wanted to manage differently and more sustainably, but they weren't quite sure where to start with that. So they gave us a call, we went to see them, walked to the farm, and then, you know, really we just sat down around the kitchen table had a really productive conversation with them about what their aims were and what was and wasn't likely to be achievable there, which we followed up with a report honing in on those particular elements. And we actually set out for them some example farm plans of how it might look in those different scenarios, which gave them food for thought and helped them to sort of visualize things and then clarify in their own minds what was important to them especially as it's immediately surrounding their house. So now that we understand what we're aiming for, we're about to instruct ecologists to undertake baseline surveys of the holding. And we can now do that in a pretty targeted way. And the results of this will help form their future land use plan. So all being well, it will probably result in a mixture of public and private funding, including things like biodiversity net gain and some tree planting. But I suppose the take home is that by going through the process logically from the start, I think they will find they arrive at a very clear vision for the farm and they'll have a plan in place to get there, which, you know, ultimately means it's much more likely to be successful. I think we've probably covered this, uh, Julia. I was going to ask about what other potential benefits there are for landowners when they're taking into account of their natural capital, but we've probably covered all sort of key ones already. Is there anything else you can think of we should mention? 
understanding what you've got is the key um, to both taking advantage of the income streams available, but also avoiding the threats. I mean, in some instances, there'll be an obvious opportunity for direct and sometimes significant financial returns. And, you know, the two headline schemes that spring to mind are nutrient offsetting and biodiversity net gain. Aside from that, it's an investment piece, really, about creating a roadmap to future-proof your farm, making those decisions now. And it's important to have that in place because if you don't, as we know with all the things, if you don't do that, they, they just slip and suddenly 10 years go by and you've you've not only missed some great opportunities, but you've perhaps backed yourself in a bit of a corner. So those are the benefits really. And, and it's, it's something that we should all be engaging in. Yeah, absolutely. What costs or pitfalls do you think landowners and farmers need to keep in mind when planning useful natural capital? I mean, I've already mentioned earlier on that when clients talk to me about this, I'll say you need to take some proper advice and need to look at all your options very carefully and taking that time to plan in this changing world I think is really important and you know learning from the experience of other farmers as well but what do you think are the are the real costs and pitfalls that they need to specifically look out for? Uh, crikey <laughs> where to start? Um, I think the first thing to say is that as with any market it is incredibly sensitive to external forces so changes in legislation being one and you know we've seen the massive impact of various not even things that have been agreed yet, but perhaps mentioned in dispatches or, or in the press, they have a huge impact and, and that too can have a shift in terms of market sentiment. Yeah, we're very much in the news at the moment in terms of the uh, the change in interest rates and uh, what's been happening in the press. Good demonstration of the impact government policy can quickly have on markets. Absolutely. And I think specifically with natural capital tax is you know, another obvious area of risk. We are yet to receive any kind of definitive guidance on things like, for example, will we be able to claim agricultural property relief on land that's entered into a conservation scheme, you know, know, like BNG or nutrient offsetting. And that's obviously a huge factor in these decisions. So proper thought needs to be given to that and the impact of entering into these sorts of long-term agreements and agreeing to what, you know, in some instances is a permanent land use change, which of course will have a knock-on effect on capital value so all of that is worth considering and I think it's probably why people to date have been slow to commit perhaps but as with any of these things there is a way through and the key to unlocking it all is taking good professional advice surrounding yourself with a team of people who alert you to these pitfalls and then help you find the right way through. One specific problem area we really touched on I think uh, earlier on this conversation was also around the landlord-tenant relationship and these new opportunities and, and how that fits with tenancies which may not have envisaged some of the things that we've been talking about or certainly didn't envisage some of the things we're talking about. And when we see, for example, some farm business tenancies which prohibit entering into natural capital projects by tenants, these are difficult things. If you've got any views on that, obviously having a successful tenant sector is, is really important. Vitally important. And it's almost impossible to to write in to tenancy agreements, all possible things that might come around the corner. And so, as with anything in terms of diversification or or anything that's sort of outside of the spectrum of your existing tenancy, firstly, huge caution against going ahead and just doing any of these schemes without discussion with the other party, because there's obviously a multitude of risks to both sides in that. Yep. So, <laughs> so first and foremost, you know, cover that off. But first and foremost, yeah, have an open and frank discussion from the start. And from my perspective, I see this as a really 
great opportunity for more engagement in that relationship because all too often we see AHA tenants who haven't seen their landlord in 60 years and that may have worked perfectly well for both parties but it is exciting now to see the narrative change slightly and people are now talking about more of a partnership both sides should be properly represented yeah I do think it sort of emphasizes the importance of this changing marketplace of taking advice on both sides landlord and tenants in terms of the drafting yeah. of the tenancy agreements moving forward and hopefully that helps make that relationship a cordial like say partnership effectively over the long term because you can't possibly predict all the opportunities that are going to come in the years to come so there needs no. to be a very good working rapport and anecdotally in most cases what we see is that actually when you get around a table landlord and tenant are really willing to have a discussion both sides are very well aware of the value that they're bringing to the relationship and so it's just a question of saying okay well this is what you want to achieve this is what I want to achieve and let's see how we can find a way through and and it is really encouraging that certainly across our clients I don't know about you Edward but certainly across our clients we're finding that in that scenario both parties are really interested in trying to find a, a good way through. Yeah they're absolutely really important. Could you perhaps talk a little bit about the current trends that you're seeing in in the market, in the natural capital market at the moment? Yeah, current trends. I mean, it's constantly evolving. So at the moment, there's a lot of discussion about nutrients, but that's geographical and may not be here to stay if the water companies are forced to upgrade all their treatment plants by 2030. And of course, if Liz Trust gets her way on scrapping the whole thing altogether. Carbon is vast and it just sort of feels to me like England's a very small player when you consider it against Scotland or other nations. So I think if I had to call the biggest opportunity, it would be biodiversity net gain for sure. It's enshrined in the Environment Act. It's already been adopted by some councils and the rest will follow suit next year. There's an established metric. You know, it feels like it's here to stay for the long term. And yes, there are some big schemes out there, but it can also be relatively small scale, you know, a few acres here or there. So it's within the grasp of most landowners and can be a really neat way to make some poor, unproductive ground work a little bit harder for you than perhaps it does at the moment. That's a good example of where a policy area where it's really settled down, isn't it? And it's, uh, yeah. it does look like you say, it's established. Really good example of what we've been talking about. Uh, Julia, thank you very much for your time today. It's been uh, really interesting, and I hope everyone uh, listening found it as useful as I did. For those listening, please do listen to some of the other episodes in our podcast series. We touched upon many of the topics we've covered today in those as well and uh, thank you very much for listening don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next foot Anstey experts in the field podcast join us next time for more insights on important rural and agricultural issues find out more about our podcast series at footanstey.com